Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and I am a what? professor, and I'm a bodybuilder, and what else am I? Writer, um, talk show host. How about that? Say that again. Dr. Lonnie Lowry. <laughs> you know, the reason I saw that, I was watching Indiana Jones last night in the, the little kid's short round. He says, you call him Dr. Lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that kid's alert. Hey, lady, you call him Dr. Jones. My professional name. Rob Fortress Ford, yeah, I'm a journalist, ex-competitor bodybuilder, and competitive powerlifter, and yeah, there, uh, that's what I am. There you go. Uh, I, I am what I am, and that's all that I am. And that ain't much. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Stevens, I, uh, I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, aspiring Highland Games athlete, and, uh, amongst many other things. I run Strength Field, Lift for Hope. So you're aspiring. You were dabbling last week. Now you're. I was. The, yeah, yeah. I'm now. I'm aspiring because I'm thinking about going and throwing again here in about six weeks. So moving yeah. up in the commitment scale. <laughs> moving on up. Okay. So uh, well, I got a couple things I want to bring up, just as usual, that people sent me emails about. About. The first one, you know what, Phil? What? <laughs> you're still on the same continent. Watch your ass. <laughs> Okay, um, he, this guy's Jeffrey Neher, ne- um, okay. wrote in, thank you Jeffrey, um, how much fish oil do you use, how much should you use, the stuff I've got says to take roughly 2.5 grams per day, but I know guys that take 8 to 10, is there a correct quote unquote, amount to take or does it vary person to person? I responded to him and said that we'd, uh, I'd bring this up simply because we do have Lonnie Lowry with us, and he, uh, of course, is the uh, resident guy to go to for these type of things. So, Lonnie, take it away. Well, you know, actually, I'm going to partly defer to Phil for a second because Phil, you've taken boatloads of fish oil, oh, yeah. before, haven't you? I mean, I'm taking up to like 40 grams a day. Um, I like Dan John's suggestion. Uh, just keep adding in slowly until you have a negative side effect, which is usually poop. Uh, you know, you'll get diarrhea, <laughs> and then and then back off a little bit. Yeah, with um, fish oils, they're so innocuous that yeah. I think that's probably um, you know not completely unreasonable. But you know, in bodybuilding, it seems like people are saying to do that with all supplements, which I think is yeah. you know no. Don't do that. I think the only <laughs> other worry though is how thin it can make your blood. I know when I was taking a lot, I mean, I'd get a little nick. And I'd bleed like hell. That would be uh, one of the concerns, yeah. I think. It, you remember I was fussing a couple of months ago about getting uh, bloodshot eyes when I squatted. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I um, did the same thing a lot when I was taking eye. It, you know, it makes you wonder if that's happening in your eyes. Are you getting little, like, mm-hmm. micro hemorrhages in your brain or something? Exactly. I don't know. So, yeah. anyway, the short answer is fish oils have a dose response effect. Uh, in, in most cases, the more, the greater the effect. Uh, they're fairly innocuous. Uh, if you look at the research, though, a lot of research uses only about up to maybe three grams 
of EPA plus DHA a day. So there's two main ingredients in, in fish oils, right? The two long-chain, highly unsaturated fatty acids. Um, DHA is docosahexaenoic acid, and EPA is icosapentaenoic acid. So that's why we just say DHA and EPA, because that's such a mouthful. But the point is, um, those are the active ingredients you're looking for. So I personally usually take three or four grams just of the active ingredients, not of fish oil. So just make sure you're reading the label right, and it's not total grams of fish oil. Um, In fact, I would even suggest you do what I do, is go to a Costco or a Sam's Club um, that, that's gotten good reviews by Consumer Reports as far as the ch- cheapest way to get bang for the buck. Get triple strength. Uh, because if you buy something cheaper, it'll look like you're getting more tabs for the money, but you're not getting a huge amount of those active ingredients, EPA and DHA. So well, you, know how, you know how most brands have the 400, 400, 400, you know, 1,200? I don't have the bottle in front of me right now, but... Most of the ones I get, and I, I'm not really, I'm not loyal to any specific brand up here. I just usually get the generic for the drugstore that I'm going to. Mm-hmm. I, I try and get the ones that it looks like the higher dose ones here in Canada, say 1,200 megs on the cover, and on the back it defines all those long-winded words you just said as 400, 400, 400. So, mm-hmm. what, what would you suggest to start off with? They, they say one three times a day. I usually do two or three three times you a day. Can, that's a good question. As a starter, just to make sure everything's you know playing it safe, uh, you could start to get effects, according to the literature, on about a half a gram, 500 milligrams total EPA and DHA a day. So they'd be like 250 and 250. Usually, uh, uh, depending on the manufacturer, they're a little heavier on EPA or DHA. But the point being is as little as 500 milligrams total, but that's so small I personally don't waste my time, you know, and so, like I said, I usually go for three or four thousand milligrams of those two active ingredients combined into hell with the total amount of fish oil. The other stuff in that oil, other fatty acids, et cetera, I don't really care about. So, um, anyway. so, so how many tabs would that be, Lonnie, for myself and people out there just... Well, if you get some of the super strong ones, it would only be a few, ta- a few, you know, a gel caps or what have you. If yeah. you're doing it just regular fish oils, you might have to take four or five capsules at a time more than once a day. So, yeah, yeah. you know. Okay. Yeah. So the whole 8 to 10 isn't out of scale for those people. You know, it might be the right amount Yeah. that his friends are taking. Do you guys notice when you take them uh, it being helpful in your joints? I have arthritis in my family, and I'm trying to delay it. I mean, I can already feel a little bit of those sort of arthritic, you know, like the ends of your fingers get a little bit um, bony kind of. I'm already starting to notice a little bit of that, even, you know, at my uh, spry young age. So i got to be careful here. So I'm trying to delay that, you know, cytokines, a different thing. A lot of the inflammatory processes slow down. I, I can't say my joints feel miraculously better. They feel a hell of a lot better when I take some ibuprofen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's well, like sure, that. yeah. You know. Speaking of ibuprofen, just on a side note for myself, Lonnie, what do you think, of, if you get tabs are like, say, 400 each, what would you think would be, like, like, I remember you once telling me that, uh, you know, taking much less than 800 to 1,000 for athletes at any, is kind of useless. Oh, well, for, yeah, the, the anti-inflammatory dose that you might get suggestion, you know, from a physical therapist or something or from a doctor is usually 800 milligrams. And the anti-pain, the analgesic dose is only like two to 400. So if you're really looking to squash the inflammation and not just the pain, yeah, a lot of people will take, you know, 
multiple 200 milligram tablets or you know what have you however the pills you know pan out like that but now anyway, what is yeah, it, what 800 is, milligrams is usually closer to the anti-inflammatory dose. now what would be in your estimation pushing the limits of that like as far as uh, you know like um, consistent consistency of taking upwards of those types of dosages well, I would suggest people might want to consider or at least talk with their doctor about just doing it on training days. I mean, because it's a very acute effect. I mean, heck, we had Nick Bird on here from Phil Stewart's, uh, Stewart's lab, uh, oh, man, um, months ago. But he was actually talking about mild anabolic qualities, believe it or not, with ibuprofen. Because while you're taking it, it actually suppresses anabolism, and then later you get, like, this rebound effect. Um and you know that's what Nick Bird was touching on just very briefly. But anyway, so but that I would, would do it every day because you're going to get gastric bleeding and stuff. Right, but that would be post training, not pre. Oh, I would do it. Well, just for the analgesic effects, like I took two before I went to the gym today, just so I you know could feel nice and loose and limber. So it depends on your age. If you're young, you pr- you might not need it. I don't. Yeah, but you're saying like taking it before wouldn't have a negative effect on your training. No, overall, no, no, because any any suppression that it might have gets rebounded you know homeostasis rules the day the body will always find a way to adjust for me it's beneficial too yeah I mean, it's uh yeah i mean i can either I either have the choice of not taking it and getting a okay training session or take it and get a great one yeah and, i've been noticing know, that yep so yep. Um, I'll, I'll take 800 to a thousand and go train yeah that's, that's a that's a good solid anti-inflammatory dose there. that's once or twice a week i do that you know, right i would like Lonnie was saying, it's more about the don't take a thousand or two thousand milligrams every day. That's when you're going to start getting you know, ulcers and this and that. Right. And you know what? Let me throw out a disclaimer. We're joking about doctor. I am not a medical doctor, so <laughs> I'm, when I say any of this or any of us do, you know, this is for informational purposes. Go ask your doctor. Everybody's got different stomach sensitivity and and everything else. So you know, we're telling you consider these things. We're not saying go do these things. Yeah. Just saying. I'm saying that. Okay. Right. Dr. Fortress. <laughs> Rob stayed at Holiday Inn last I night. Am Dr. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else you got, Rob? What else we got? Well, only something that you guys were kind of bantering about, and I, I hadn't, didn't really get involved with it, but I thought it was interesting about specifically Phil there. You are talking about the overhead press. Yeah. I just thought we could talk about that a little bit, because I thought that was kind of interesting what you guys were talking about. Yeah, I, I don't know. How, how long do we want to go into this? Um, I personally think it's a better move. I mean, me, uh, I think for anybody that's not a, a powerlifting athlete that has to do it in competition, I, I think it's a safer move. I think it more, has more application in real life, I guess. Um, and I've seen less injuries from it. Um, especially, I mean, for athletes, I think it's more applicable on the field to play um, football players and stuff you don't often run up somebody with your chest held high and push them like that you're going to be leaning over and pushing into them um, it's anytime you're pushing on something in, in real life you're going to be it's going to be more of an overhead type press mm. there's less shoulder injuries I think uh, as far as the bench press goes though it's I think it's a great mass builder um, and if people I think they should still do it but stay in the, the lighter lighter loads and higher rep ranges if they're not a power yeah you know what I've noticed I mean I used to have I wouldn't say I had any sort of you know large scale inflammation problems from I've never really been massively injured from anything but you know just low level stuff if you're going heavy on bench for a while you know I get kind of inflammation here or there kind of 
aggravation. But you know what? I've really come to realize that really perfecting your setup on the bench press goes so far towards preventing not only injury, goes without saying, but just that kind of inflammation that accompanies just the repetition of, you know, actually having to, you know, train something consistently intensely for, you know, any length of time. I mean, it sounds funny because I've been trained for so long, but like really in the last year I've realized even just how important it is to really, really pull, pull your shoulders back, you know, so your scapula kind of gets tucked in and back um, to the point where really you can be shuffling around on the bench for a good, you know, good 10 seconds before you're, you know, ready to go. If I can add something just quick, I think whether it's bench press or overhead press, I think Phil might have mentioned something about this with overhead, is people need to get used to, like, settling into their lats as sort of a base for that kind of thing and not just think about just your deltoids if you're doing a military press or, you know, like you were just saying, lock yourself into the bench press, you know, tense your lats, get get that very tight kind of base to push from. And I think once you kind of start to get in that groove, you're going to be glad you did. Yeah, because I, I more and more now that I'm so focusing on that, I notice you know when I watch guys bench press, even guys who are quite accomplished, uh, many of them simply because they use lots of drugs. But you know, but I mean, I notice just how flippant a great many people, including those types of athletes, are towards their preparation when they you know they just kind of lean back on the bench and you know as long as they're square, they go for it. And I. I, I come to realize that again if you're using any considerable weight or you know doing the lift for any considerable period of time you need to really take more time to kind of you know get yourself in the in in the right positioning and so forth because i mean let's be realistic three four five hundred pound bench presses for any and if you're if you get to those kind of weights clearly you're probably you know have been consistent for a a number of years probably you you know it's i mean that's just cumulative and, and you really have to take those extra steps to you know increase your longevity doing it because like Phil uh, you know says, what we can't discount too is we're talking about somatotypes body types a couple of weeks ago yeah and somebody who's very ectomorphic and can start pushing up and down three or four hundred pounds you know in a bench press that's going to take more of a toll almost by definition your muscles are bearing are you know more of the uh, brunt, your, your little joints just can't, you know, be this massive structure and framework. Like some of the guys that I see that are super accomplished, gigantic ventures, their hands are like catcher's mitts. You know, their shoulders are like cannonballs. And I'm talking about like the joint itself. So they, they can actually bear the part of the load on their skeleton. And if you're very, if you're ectomorphic or thin, you might be strong enough, you might be muscular enough to still support that weight, but I got to think that's doing a number on your joints, you know, more yeah. so than if you have this massive joint just, you know, underneath the weight holding it up. Right. Just saying. Yeah. So. For sure, and I think there's a big thing to be said about building a big upper back, you know, something to press off of for both moves. Learn how to engage your lats. Well, that that brings up a good point too. The whole idea that when you're lowering the, the bar. You know, try try to lower the bar less with your pressing muscles and more with your use your back as as the lowering tool. Yeah, because that also and I remember you in the past spoke about that a little bit more at length, Phil. And it's 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 good. It's it's and a lot of people like you know how how do you learn to do that with your back and you just have to experience the exercise for you know many yeah. many years. And another way that I found to kind of really kind of figure out what that feels like and again this is I've never heard anybody else say this and I don't know if this would work for anybody else 
but I I find doing reverse grip bench presses, either consistency consistently or you know at least semi consistently, for some reason for me, switching my hands into that reverse allows me to really feel what the back feels like when the bar is coming down, um, and I can then transfer that. To, to that feeling. To what what kind of load can you do with that, Rob? Are you around half of your normal bench press, three quarters? Are you almost Rever- the same? I'm about the same with reverse. Wow. I can. See, uh, I am really not. <laughs> I, I haven't done it for a long time because I don't go for maxes really with reverse grip, but I've I've quite easily done a 405 with reverse. So. Um, Who is I that can, famous guy, the big kid, Anthony something? It was a reverse um, bench? Anthony, Anthony Clark, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, he Clark. passed away several years ago, but um, he was one of the... And, of course, he, he kind of took that from the Barbarian Brothers, David and Peter Paul, who he was good friends with. Um, so, And I'm not suggesting the Barbarian Brothers came up with that move by any stretch of the imagination, but they certainly kind of popularized it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and, and the whole... Everybody always used to kind of call it a novelty lift that really had no kind of, you know... Justification to be actually being used for anything, you know, practical. But I, I, I disagree with that from a number of, um, from a number of standpoints. So anyway, like I said, try, try, because if you think about that, when you're lowering the weight, not only are you saving more energy for your push if you're using your back and those supporting structures for the bench press, but you're also going to alleviate a lot of that, you know, pressure ultimately on those, those kind of. Those <laughs> well, I'll tell you from a bodybuilding perspective, and before we move on to the next topic here, but. Is um, I actually have been focusing on just throwing in a couple sets of uh, just dumbbell military presses okay. uh, during my. I do that. I actually do it on back day uh, because I, I find that sometimes my upper back or my lats will get a little bit of get, uh, you know sore from doing overhead movements. Uh, I just think just because of the stabilizing and everything else. But mm-hmm. I think there's really something to that. If you if you have a very weak bench and you don't know why, I think some military press type work could actually really surprise you. I know uh, Jonathan Mike is a big proponent of trying to push more and more overhead. So Yeah, I think it's true. I think if you're a long limb lifter too, it helps. Um, just because it's all lockout the whole way up overhead. Mm-hmm. And I know my bench press will rise if my overhead doesn't. Okay. Uh, I've got big, long eight bars. So, uh, well, well, that's also what makes you a killer deadlifter. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, there's, for the people out there, there's, there's so many different ways to kind of, you know, uh, facilitate um, improvements in, in the movements and, and to alleviate some some of the probably inevitable result of you know consistency intensity as far as like inflammation at least and injury unfor- you know hopefully not but you just have to experiment around like I'm saying about the reverse bench kind of t- teaching somebody how it feels to have the back involved in the lower end I mean again you, you discover again what that works for me maybe it'll work for somebody else maybe it won't but you know what? Just give it a whirl, and yep. maybe you, you know you'll find your own little particular ways of doing those types of things. So interesting. It's it's what keeps it fun too, you know, because this this kind of discovery that goes on and on throughout your you know decades of training. It's like that's why I I mean I've said this a million times. I don't understand people who say, oh yeah, lifting weights is so boring. I I, I don't get that from so many different vantage points. I don't understand how it's boring, but I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. What else do you have? Do you have anything else? Uh, nothing specifically on my end, no. Okay. I do have one bit of uh, listener um, question here, and I'm just going to read this quickly. This is from our Facebook page, and uh, it sort of struck a chord with me because it's something that I'm actually doing right now, and I did it before I, I competed last time. Um, 
Anyway, Richard Feinberg says, hey, guys, have you ever thought about doing a podcast on transitioning from bulking to a cutting diet? Uh, I know you did a topic on bulking and cutting, but never the transition between the two. Thanks. And then Warren Foreman and a couple of other people were sort of uh, agreeing with that. So let me just share a couple of tips that I've stumbled across over the years. This is not guru talk. I didn't make up these terms. I didn't pull it out of my behind like so many <laughs> pre-contest gurus do. This is very real science. So I want you to be realistic as I go through this. I don't want. I'm not promising you you're going to be shredded in two weeks. But these are very real tips that I think can help you. One of the things that you may notice is when you are bulked up, you, you find yourself out of breath. I mean, sometimes I almost have to hold my breath when I lean over to tie my shoes. You know, once I get up around 220, I start feeling like that. I know that's funny to you guys, but to me, that's a lot of weight, and it's just hard for me to do that. So you start to feel sort of unconditioned, for lack of a better term. So I'm like, how do I kick this off? Because I am a fan of fasted, non-panting kinds of cardio before breakfast for many reasons. I can share lots of literature on that. I, I've seen some people that are popular in the bodybuilding world say that that's bro science. I'm not a big fan of that term, but um, you know, pseudoscience, whatever. It's not pseudoscience. If you're interested in direct fat oxidation, burning while you're on the treadmill, uh, that's one approach. Now, there are other approaches too, and I'm not going to get into that now, but it is one approach. So knowing that I do that, this is one of the things that I really discovered. This happened, I really started stumbling into this. Uh, there's a, a guy I know, uh, Marty Gibala, uh, and he works with some real heavy hitters up there at the University of Guelph in Canada. These guys do a lot of this high-intensity interval training stuff. So let me just share a couple of these things real quick. Journal of Applied Physiology 2007, uh, and, and colleagues. What they did was they took, uh, here, seven high intensity aerobic interval training sessions over two weeks. So that's it. So again, we're looking at a transition, right? So only seven sessions of this over a two week period. So maybe three the first week, four sessions the next week, then you're in a different physical state. And bear with me. So in this first one, they looked at women, but in some of these others, they look at men. Um, in just two weeks, because what they did was, by the way, they did they do these like uh, thirty second all out Wingate sprints, so bicycles, you know, ergometer sprints. Um, there's no reason you probably couldn't do this on foot too. It's just a little bit abusive, less abusive to your joints if you use a bike. But anyway, and they looked at their muscles' metabolic ability, and here they increased their ability to process oxygen by thirteen percent. Whole body fat oxidation increased by thirty six percent. So they're becoming literally a 36% better fat burning machine just by doing these four to six, you know, sprints. Uh, sometimes I'll do this as a warm up before I lift. Sometimes I do it after. Um, anyway, it says uh, high intensity interval training significantly increased muscle mitochondrial. Uh, it's called HODE. I'm not going to bore everybody. Um, HODE is one of those enzymes. It's hydroxy-CoA dehydrogenase. It's one of the rate limiting steps in fat burning. Anyway, that increased, and so did citrate synthase. That's one of the steps of the Krebs cycle. That's part of, again, your metabolic aerobic machinery, and they got increases in those by 20 to 32%. So this is a significant jump in just seven sessions over two weeks. So the way I would like to use and abuse this, and I've done in the past, is if I was very unfit, feeling sort of you know sluggish and out of shape, maybe strong, maybe a little over fat, though, and not very conditioned, I'll take two weeks and I'll do some uh, 
interval sprints that hopefully don't interfere with my workouts. I mean, literally as few as four 30-second all-out sprints. That's not that much. It's probably not going to interfere with your training. And that's one of the things that concerns me when people get into too much of the high-intensity interval stuff. They say, oh, it's great. It doesn't affect you know muscle mass. Listen, look at a cross-trainer. Look at a cross-fitter. I don't really want to look like most of those guys. I want to be m- m- more massive than that. Okay. I don't want to look like a sprinter, uh, a wrestler, let's say, or certainly a swimmer. So here's another a follow-up to studies from 2010, White and Colleagues. Um, this is from Glasgow in the UK. What they, they took uh, overweight and sedentary men. They were 32 years of age on average, so you know, roughly middle, uh, middle-aged guys. Six sessions is all they did of four to six repeat, repeats of these 30-second bike sprints. Um, insulin sensitivity index and resting fat oxidation in the fasted state, so that means outside of the workout, you know, their ability to burn fat, was significantly higher after they did just these you know, six sessions. Um, it says, however, these changes were no longer significant 72 hours post-intervention. Uh, so, in other words, if you're doing this, get on the bandwagon for two weeks and do it three or four times a week. You can get significant improvements. You can become a better fat-burning machine in just two weeks. Uh, they also had decrease in waist size, believe it or not, over that period. I kind of question how accurately they can do that in just two weeks. But, And then finally, a German paper here, uh, Zwingenberger and colleagues uh, this is actually called Training Recommendations for Exercise Intensity with Regard to Maximal Fat Oxidation. So maximal fat burning. Uh, here they basically they took a mix of men and women, and they said fat max, so it's like VO2 max, but the maximal fat burning was reached uh, at a median heart rate of 138 beats per minute. So that's like a light jog. Uh, so the whole idea here with this transition thing that I wanted to address was that, um, yes, you can transition. You can set the stage to become a better fat-burning machine. Then when you start doing your morning pre-breakfast cardio or any cardio for that matter, it's going to burn more fat. If you just start with the fasting mild kind of cardio, if that's your approach, you're not going to be a very good fat burner, you know, if all you've been doing is low rep and, you know, you've been pigging out and all that kind of stuff. So you set yourself up for two weeks with this high intensity interval stuff is literally as little as four 30-second bouts, you do that three or four times a week, and two weeks later, you're almost literally a third better at burning fat. So yeah. that's what I would suggest for transition. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's interesting because, again, I've, as I've spoken about in years past on the show, you know, there's as far as my forays into, you know, doing a little bit of jogging and so forth, you know, it really, specifically, I, I would I, I remember you once saying, Lonnie, that when you get to a certain size, you become kind of like you jokingly said, you become your own training implement, and maybe that has something to do with it, but I found certainly that you don't have to to improve your cardiovascular fitness and certainly become, like you say, metabolically more active. I, I guess that's the way I would put it. Um, it doesn't take as much as people think, really. Two or three times a week, really. Well, I'll tell you, I think most people would agree with this, and I bet you will too, is you're not going to feel more ripped after two weeks. That's absurd. That's magazine no. cover nonsense. But what you might experience is feeling a little bit metabolically cleaner, for lack of a better term, a little bit more... Um, you know, fit less panting. Like well, it certainly takes a lot of the, the puffiness out of it. And anybody who is a strength athlete will know what I'm talking about. Certainly, Phil, I'm sure knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you might not even really, it might not even be reflected on the scale at all. But you definitely feel less puffy. 
<laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but well, literally, uh, you're talking about twenty or thirty percent better mitochondrial, you know, enzymes and transport enzymes and all this sort of thing. So, yeah. you know, that's where you burn your fat. So you can definitely you just, do it two weeks, and it doesn't take. It, it's intense, but it doesn't right. take very long. So that's no, 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 no. I'm not, when I'm talking about two, three times a week for what I've I, what I've done, um, I'm talking like you know anywhere between fifteen and thirty minutes. So, and as far as affecting your lifting goes, I found, I never found that it really affected my lifting at all, as long as, again, I didn't exceed that right. kind of That's frequency key. and volume, and right. I kept my eating, you know, and my rest optimal. Well, that's so. why that's what drew me to these things. When I literally saw two weeks, and then I saw yeah. literally just six or seven sessions, you know, yeah. of, you know, let's face it, it takes all of ten or fifteen minutes to do four to six, you know, sprints on a bike. Yeah. And, and by the way, you usually put three or four minutes in between each 30-second sprint. But the point is, yeah, I mean, you get very significant uh, improvements. So when you transition, you're actually, you hit the ground running w- with your diet phase and you're burning fat, you know, like a champ, literally that fast. And, you know, you also, like we've said in the past as well, you can't discredit the fact that or diminish the fact that, you know, even if you're an anaerobic athlete, you know, making kind of inroads, you know, to what whatever capacity, you know, in an aerobic type fashion, you've you've got that you know that that psychological training of pushing yourself, and I, I'm I'm sure it would go the other way too for somebody who you know had spent years being a competitive runner, getting into strength training. As far as you have that athletic, competitive, fierce kind of you know, You're right? So you, it is you, hard to start the cardio stuff. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. So if you have that mindset of kind of like you know pushing through you know discomfort and let's face it, pain. Uh, already working in your favor, um, the gains can come a lot more quick than, quickly than they would for somebody who is starting off equally with the same volume and intensity and so oh, forth. That's but, a good point, Rob. A lot of this work has been done with overweight people or people that are sedentary sort of starting from zero. It's really hard to extrapolate that, to, though, to a bodybuilder or a powerlifter uh, who's trying to start some type of a leaning out phase because, you know, are we sedentary? I mean, if you look at some early work, they actually suggest that very large hypertrophied muscles are not that different from sedentary muscles. They're just bigger. Uh, however, uh, you might say we're even worse than sedentary, you know, because we have more muscle mass, not a lot of capillaries perfusing all that muscle mass. I mean, there's, but then again, we train, so maybe we're more fit than the sedentary. It's very hard to extrapolate some of this, but I think the key is yeah. what you said too. If you, if you keep it so brief, the amount of volume is so low, then you don't become a cross trainer. The focus still is the heavy weights. And all you're doing is, you know, stoking your metabolism for some uh, leaning out period here. Exactly, exactly. And, and again, when you're big and you run, it doesn't take long to really shock yourself metabolically. And I think that's maybe you can, you know, I mean, the sweating and all that kind of thing, of course, you know, is the, is the dead giveaway about the whole thing. But I find when I do those kind of brief, you know, sessions, um, I can tell. I can tell metabolically I've kind of traumatized my system for several hours after so you know while i might have stopped sweating and all that type of thing like you know you know 20 minutes later or whatever i'm flushed you're just not built for it you know it's hard on you yeah and you can tell that your body is i mean you it it it, it has really taken a little bit of a trauma over it and but you, you know that's the same thing as you know squatting 500 pounds it's a trauma and it's something that you you know um, you know, knowingly inflict on yourself, and your body can't really help but you know adapt to it in some fashion. And I, you know, it, in, in a less scientific way of what you're saying, Lonnie, that is that 
for what we're talking about. It's just, you know, an improvement in your body's ability to, when you do do some things like that, whether you're a competitive bodybuilder or what have you, it's going to pay dividends. It will. There's no right. question. Well, that's I just wanted to give specific instructions and show everybody that those adaptations, those training results you're talking about, can happen in, in a, literally as little as three or four times a week over two weeks. Just right. crank up the intensity, but keep it real brief. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredible. Like I said, I hadn't run for few years, three, four years, and I just recently, because of something I'm pursuing, had to kind of get myself back into a semblance of, you know, <clears throat> it, you know, endurance car, and I just, actually today, just did my fifth fifth run um, in, in five goes, five goes over two weeks, I've already seen a much improved ability. It's yeah. true what you're saying too. Big dudes, it, it's when you see a little thin dude say, "Oh, look, you're already panting." It's like, you know what? Let me strap 200 pounds of cement blocks <laughs> to your back, you know, waif, and we'll see how you're doing. And I think oh, yeah. it'll obese people. People forget. Oh, look how out of shape. Well, they may be out of shape, but they may also be carrying hundreds of pounds, and so their intensity, even at a brisk walk, is mm. near maximal. And you just got to oh, keep that in mind. Yeah, when I got into the, you know, when I was doing this, you know quite vigorously, like I said, four or five years ago, I was 25 to 35 pounds lighter than I am now. Um, and I'm very rapidly approaching my abilities four or five years ago, 30 pounds heavier. But I can tell you, I can feel that 30 pounds every step I take, you know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and like, I, I'm not saying that in a, in a downer way, because I actually, you know, I always look at everything as being, you know, just more of a challenge, you know, like you say, it's, you know, it's awesome, it just makes me stronger, but there's no question, I mean, you're, try running at 300 pounds, that, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's not easy, you know, and it, it, it's funny, the cardio I always found to be, and it, it holds true today, the cardio aspect to me of it is, is, is not, so much the issue is is the fact that you're just like even in my legs you know you're just like you're, you're moving so you're 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 propelling so much weight you know that you're like okay you're breathing heavy and all that kind of stuff but i mean it's just it, it's it's just the overall you know it, you know exertion of just well, you know, try, you know what to keep aerobic activity by definition is submaximal if it's aerobic it's submaximal but when you when you get as big as you or phil or some of our listeners are gigantic, then it's very hard to do anything sub-maximal. You're geared toward doing everything maximally, and then when you try to do something light or sub-maximal, you, you weigh so damn much that you're near, you know, you're like at 90% already before you even start to do very, very much. You know what I well, mean? Well, that brings up an interesting point, too, because I actually find the lower-level jogging, you know, if I go for a 20-minute run, you know, if I'm doing... You know, kind of interspersed jogging with, you know, then, then run for, you know, 100 meters or whatever, then jog for a bit. The running part, the sprinting part for me is so much easier. I, I actually prefer <laughs> yeah. that little short spurt of running, which is kind of lends itself to what you're just saying, Lonnie. The whole idea of I'm so much, you know, as a strength athlete, I'm so much more suited to bursts of explosiveness that I, that actually feels much more natural for me than when I have to slow back down. And then, you know, keep jogging for another five minutes. <laughs> so right. so I actually look forward to that. So. Okay, I'll tell you. There's so much onto this. Maybe we will do a show on this in the future. But um, Because there's obviously several things you can do. You could do, if you want to start leaning out, aside from this sort of cardio-type transition I just talked about, basically your choices are diet, doing more sets or reps within, you know, in the weight room, 
which we usually call junk reps. You got to be very careful with that. Or you know, or do your cardio. So it's diet, weights, or cardio, and then or you, the whole or that whole you do each you know, of these things. You know, yeah, in, in, that whole weeder principle of quality training, where you're decreasing your you know your rest periods, where you're actually almost doing like a circuit t- type thing. That yeah. can actually be quite useful too, and right, minimize yeah. the the whole junk rep aspect of it. It just means that your workout all of a sudden is not an hour and twenty minutes. It's you know thirty five minutes. All right, Fortress. Um, quickly before we get on, get to our uh, break and our topic of the day, which by the way we're just going to chat about the Olympics a little bit, um, muscular aspects of the Olympics, I guess. Um, but I want to offer uh, a quick contest if anybody wants to get on our Facebook page in honor of the Expendables action film coming out in August, part two. Uh, I've got some. I got a short stack of DVDs here, and I am willing to send them to you. Here's what I want. We're going to pick three people. From our Facebook page, uh, if you just list any three of the action heroes in the film, which is easy. Now, are we talking about part one or the one coming out? Because there's a the one that's coming out. Okay, right. Because yeah. there's even more guys. Yes. Like, like Chuck yes. Norris, for Christ's sake. My wife's like, oh, my God, Chuck Norris. So All anyway, right, don't give it away. Yeah. Okay, you're right. You're right. So list three of the guys in the film, but then list three modern-day non-muscular action heroes. Because we've talked about that on the show before, how we've sort of... Uh, wussified action heroes. They used to be all these muscular dudes, and a lot of the guys in this film are hyper-muscular. Um, but they're also old school, and they laugh about it and whatnot. So three of the guys from the film, and also three guys who you'd love to point a finger at who are presented on film as action hero, but, you know, as Phil would say, they're barely a grown-ass man. They're twinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're twinks. Yeah, so... <laughs> Point the finger at the Twinks. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> it's, it's the point of finger at the Twinks competition. The, yeah, the, the Hollywood's serving up uh, a wussified action hero to us, I'm afraid. So uh, anyway, so that'll be our contest. So just go to get on our, our listeners page. Having said that, let's take a break, and then uh, Phil will lead us into the topic of the day. How about that, bro? Hey, Phil, set, set up on, just before we go, Phil, set up another uh, dedicated uh, post there, maybe on our Facebook page. Again, so it makes it easy, so we don't have to rifle through trying to find everybody's. And just when you, when, when uh, our listeners who want to take part in this contest go on there, just find that dedicated component and put your submission in there. That way, they're all in one easy to find place, and we're not uh, flipping around for five hours. I'll try and get that here in a little bit. Cool. <laughs> Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lonman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? 
In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, and we're back. Um, like Lonnie said, we're going to talk about the Olympics today. I figured I'd kick it off with some uh, Olympic weightlifting, kind of the, uh, you know, we're about lifting weights, so I uh, figured we'd touch that first. Been a pretty good games. Um, I don't know if you guys know, there's been 44 Olympic and world records broken in those games. Hmm. So that's pretty damn interesting. But um, Phil, is that is that far more than usual? It's a lot, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you don't see... You haven't seen a lot of world records broken in in recent times since the ban of drugs. But there's also been talk this year of, you know, only, okay, only three athletes have been caught this year in the games uh, across the board. So, and the Olympic Committee is saying it's the, they've got the best testing ever and this and that, and it's, it's either the, you know, the athletes are finally cleaning up or they're starting to let people slide. Or, and, as usual... As usual, for most, they're ahead of the game. They're, thank you. They're ahead of yeah. the game. Which, which, you know what? I mean, this is probably going to make me sound like sour grapes or like not sour grapes, but cynical. Yeah. But that would be my guess. No, and then this is the first year I've heard of things where the athlete was above acceptable levels. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> you know, so there's an acceptable level of of this compound, but an unacceptable level instead of like a. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so it's like a sliding scale now, almost. Yeah, yeah. and so, but, um, you know, 44, 44 records broken, I think, the first one I'm going to mention is, uh, oh, I'm going to probably butcher her name, uh, Poto, Poto Bedova, it was that, anyways, the, the, the women's, I think it's the 80, or 75 kilo class, um, she was kicked off the Russian team prior to the last Olympics, and left and then they kept her out of, she moved to Kazakhstan. Somehow Russia kept her out of that games. She came back at this one and ended up her and an ex-teammate from Russia going head to head. They, they did the snatch. Um, the Russian gal won by one kilo. So they came, one, they came in with a one kilo difference and the Russian gal started out and every time, uh, took one kilo higher. The last four lifts for these ladies were all world records. And they hit him. Uh, she ended up beating. She she got her last lift, tied, and won by body weight. So it was it was, it was pretty sweet. Um, that, that's probably been the closest one this time. And then uh, one of the men. Let me find it here. I got it right up here. Um, that was probably the most exciting, but it's not the closest. The closest one was decided by 130 grams of body weight. Wow. Um, they went back and they said at this time it's pretty evident comparing the two food logs that the gold and silver may have been separated by as little as a chocolate bar ahead of the free competition weigh-in. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Just, yeah. um, pretty, pretty big news. But um, you saw some things like the, uh, the second person never put the triple body weight over, over their head. Um, and then big news was Klokov pulling out. We had two Russians pull out. So, um, Akiev and 
pulled out, and then the next day, Klokov pulled out. Akiev pulled out, um, supposedly from a back injury. He had a surgery like a week ago to fix his spine, and he was still wanting to go, and then his trainers wouldn't let him. Klokov pulled out the next day, and there were reports saying that uh, all of a sudden it was knee surgery. It was knee surgery, this and that. And uh, Then just recently, Randall Strassen reported that no, um, Klokov was positive. A Russian colleague just told him. Um, exactly what everybody expected. He came in, again, it's just one of those deals where they, he came in higher than is acceptable. Um, right. So, yeah. And that was a big downer for everybody because Klokov's been killing lifts. And a lot of people, that was the only person they were going to watch um, coming on to see that. But, um, hey, how did this Baydad Salimi guy, how's he done? Baydad Salimi guy. You know who that is? No, I don't. For listeners out there who want to see something... Oh, yeah, no, he did well. Yeah. He, he got gold. Yeah, if anybody wants to see something really cool, um, I found this a few, couple days ago, um, for people who might not be as, um, you know, knowledgeable about the whole weightlifting thing, but um, you, we, there's, a, there's a video on YouTube of him, the guy I just told you, Baydad Salimi, squatting, I believe it, they, well, it says it's 793.8 pounds in training, a, a back squat, um, and which is his belt on, mm-hmm. and it's something. So go on YouTube and check that out. It's uh, it's an amazing video. I mean, talk about inspirational. So and that, of course, you know, it's a back squat. So it'll you know it'll be easily transferable to most people out there who you know just do generalized weight training or powerlifting. You can see just how fiercely <laughs> strong and powerful you know these 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 weightlifters truly are. You know. Um, right, so just raw. Just yeah, raw no, he got. Yeah. yeah, he came in and he's only twenty two, and uh, got a four hundred fifty five kilogram total. So yeah, so these these guys are, and you know, and you watch over a thousand pounds. Yeah, and I mean, this is an Olympic, obviously, because he's an Olympic lifter. It's an Olympic style squat, and he goes down with total control. It's not the typical, you know, weightlifter, you know, front squat where they go down and bounce and have their knees to go in it every which way but loose. I mean, he, he, it's, this is one of those squats that if you, if you see it in a powerlifting meet, everybody would just kind of like be slack jawed, like holy crap. Just so, dominate. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing lifters. Amazing lifters. Amazing athletes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've, and of course I might have some bias about this because of what I do, but I've long said that, you know, uh, Olympic caliber weightlifters are possibly amongst the top two or three you know, most impressive physical abilities, you know, uh, specimens in the Olympics period. Yeah. Just from a performance standpoint. Of course, specific to what they're doing, but, you know, in the overall tally, I mean, it's phenomenal. The attributes that, you know, an Olympic caliber weightlifter has to have to uh, to exceed at that level. It's Speaking of which, Rob, I- I'm going to offer my two cents on this. I just saw this morning um, via Twitter from uh, NPR.org, National Public Radio, let me just share this real quick. Olympic bodies, they don't make them like they used to. Mm-hmm. And if you look down here, it says the Olympic Games seem to celebrate the extremes of athletic physique from tiny gymnasts to impossibly huge shot putters. But why are they shaped that way? So they put together a little bit like a little infographic here. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to share two things about sprinters and weightlifters. Let's see. Men's 100-meter sprint. For decades, sprinters have been getting taller, prope- uh, propelled onward by a simple law of physics. Sprinting is basically a controlled forward fall. 
uh, runners with higher centers of gravity can fall forward faster, and the taller you are, the higher your center of gravity. And they yeah. talk about the people of uh, West African descent have centers of gravity 3% higher than Europeans, which is why they dominate the sprint. Wow. Very interesting. And then here's one for weightlifting, and then I'll zip it, because I know you've got uh, some forum talk here as far as who's the best athlete and whatnot. But. Uh, men's weightlifting. Weightlifters come in all sizes, but they tend to have one thing in common, short legs and short arms. Because of their shorter limbs, they don't have to lift their barbells quite so high, so they expend less energy. Bantamweight champions can lift three times their body weight, heavyweights less than two. So just a couple of general info, informational facts there, I guess. Yeah. But And we've often talked about that, too. It's really unfair to say, oh, the big guys aren't as strong as little guys. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you, it's much, much harder to triple uh, oh, a 300-pound yeah. body weight. I mean, get serious. You know, so. Oh, well, it's like we always say, it's the law of diminishing returns. That Absolutely. Again, you can make the... Uh, We've used the analogy many times about cars, you know, to get a car to a certain speed, then to get it, you know, 100 kilometers faster takes, you know, five times the horsepower. Yeah, you, know? you can't start making it fractions and ratios. The big guys are going to look worse when, in fact, they're not. Yeah. yeah right. Oh, you can go take it and break it down as basic as the deadlift, and there's a lot of people in lightweight classes hitting 600s. And then you start getting into sevens and eights and yes. nines. You have to become incredibly huge to get that yes. extra 100, 200 pounds. Yep. And, you know, even in research, I mean, researchers know this. They they multiply by an exponent of 0.75, I think. They don't just do simple ratios. It's it's much more complicated than that. So, anyway, a couple of tidbits there. But, Rob, you had some stuff... Um, Kind of a talk about athleticism or something from. Uh, well, there was a forum that I've, I'm sure maybe some of our listeners probably go on this forum once in a while. I won't say what it is, but the thread was on the world's strong man. Um, you know, the world's strongest man will be revealed today. That was a thread title in case anybody wants to. Uh... Anyway, and it goes on, and then you start, of course, on these forums, you start getting the, the peons who don't really know much of anything, but, you know, want to spout off because they think they know something. And they always just end up making themselves look like an idiot. Anyway, and then it, the whole thing started because somebody um, said, why aren't world strongman competent competitors like Savickas taking part? And, of course, that touched off the whole thing because, of course, I had to respond and say, well, you know, that's just, what do you mean, why are they not taking part? I mean, because he's a strongman. That's what he does, you know? Just like you're saying, not seeing the world champion weightlifters going on over to strongmen. Not saying that either one could not necessarily become, you know, come to be quite good and proficient at it. But like anything, these are specific disciplines. You know, and then, of course, the argument became, you know, you had this guy that's of a little older vintage, you know, saying about how weightlifting is their really only legitimate, you know, um, you know, measure of strength and powerlifting is a joke with all the multiply gear and you know, and this is just massively oversimplification of these types of things. You know, of course, not mention it, it. Just it just gets ridiculous. And he was, you know, saying how you know um, strongman. You know, like he was saying, you know, world strongman is not is, is a TV show. It's not even really a legitimate sport. Of course, to, to that I countered that was so. What weightlifting is a TV show. It's not a sport. You know, so yeah, it's a sport that's featured once in a while on TV. There is a difference. And he was saying it's just not legitimate and blah blah blah. And so. This went on for like three or four pages of me and a few other guys blasting this guy, and it, it just it just really goes to show just how a um, misunderstood the difference you know strength training is, and and certainly not only not only misunderstood, but 
the lack of knowledge about the different disciplines of strength. Well, I training. think just lack of knowledge about the specificity principle. You know that you become highly specialized in something that you do, yeah. and there, there's going to be some carryover, but you know that's always arguable. And you know what? It's folly too. I was just listening to a an editorial. I don't know if it was on uh, 2020 or Sunday morning or whatever. It was some news show. It was in the background, and the guy was saying what folly it is to try to decide who's the best athlete. Like there was some very like you were saying, Rob, almost ignorant question about who's the best athlete. Is it Phelps? Is it, you know, somebody else? I mean, right. Bruce Jenner, you know, from days past. I mean, it's like, okay, you, this is apples and oranges. And, and yep. this whole discussion, it, it might be fun to banter back and forth, but, I mean, ultimately you're never going to be able to make that call. Nope. Well, of course not. So I mean, it's going to be opinion. Yeah. I, I, this yeah. guy also you know, made the suggestion that, uh, you know, uh, world-class strongmen are actually not at the pinnacle of world class strength because it's mostly cardio. To which I almost just, you know, choked on my <laughs> chicken sandwich. It yeah. just, you know, and his whole, you know, quote unquote logic and reasoning behind making such a statement is that they don't do predominantly, ab, you know, absolute lifts, maximum, maximum lifts. You know, a lot of it is repetition or grabbing. Yeah, a lot of it's strength endurance. Right. But I mean, again, to, to, to suggest even remotely that you know, the best in the world and strongmen are not at a world-class level of strength. No, they are. Is so one ridiculous. I mean, one could argue the other way. I mean, about weightlifting. It's weightlifting is not a great display of strength. It's an awesome display of power. You know, it's funny you say that because in in it is. one of the I things mean, that I said to this is he was saying weightlifting is the ultimate strength sport. You know, to just and I actually said to him exactly what you just said. I was like, I re, I respond saying. <laughs> Actually, possibly, you know, probably it's, it's an expression of power, yes, but strength, like grinding absolute strength, absolutely not. Yeah. You know, and, and again, but it's again, these, most people don't really understand that, you know, like Lonnie's saying about the specificity and how, you know, how detailed, uh, you know, you have to get when you're talking about these types of things. You can't just generalize like that because you, you end up, I mean, it's like Phil and I have said on the show before, it's kind of a misnomer to call powerlifting powerlifting and weightlifting, you know. It should almost be the other way around, because I know you've said this too, Phil. You know, you know, ideally, if you're really looking at it, powerlifting should probably be weightlifting. Yeah. You know, and weightlifting should be, you know, what is now, you know, considered powerlifting. Um, but again, it's. Uh, I know, I know many. I mean, let's just be honest. There's many weightlifters I can deadlift more than them, but there's even more weightlifters that can throw, you know, more weight over their head in the snatch than me. You know, because they can display that power. A right. They're good at what they do. Um, so yeah, totally different, totally different sports. I mean, I think it's uh, well, they, well, of course, yeah. They, not to say Olympic weightlifters aren't strong. There are some out there that are amazingly strong. Um, but then there are others. I've known guys at the top level that that uh, you know their deadlift is ten kilo under their best clean. You know, and they right. just know how to right. to, to move it. Yeah. I think it's worth defining too that power is work over time. And yeah. the minuscule amount of time that an Olympic lifter moves all that weight and the distance that he moves it, you know, um, clearly puts those guys, like you were saying, that should almost be the power sport. Yeah, and it's interesting. The power displayed in yeah. literal terms is just outrageous compared yes. to other sports. I mean, to, to just paint this particular fellow that I'm talking about on this thread even in it more dim light than I already have, that was one of his comments saying that. Yeah, no kidding. He was talking about how. You know, um, powerlifters might be, you know, 
very dynamic lifters, but and I'm like, where is this guy coming from? Like, if if anything, weightlifters are the dynamic uh, lifters, yeah, the not dynamic the power lifters. The power yeah. lifters are very static, and you know the distances that they actually move the weight are you know correspondingly much shorter. Yes, you know, like like weightlifting is, in my estimation, hugely dynamic. Yeah, you know, it's 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 the one. So I again, I. I and it's unfortunate, right? Because then you get all these guys, and like this is an older guy who's probably very biased, and unfortunately yeah. he's, you know, he learned the most what he did in 1945, and didn't lift, you know, learn anything more after 1950. You know, now he's spouting this garbage, and there's lots of 15 year olds on there who are thinking, oh well, this guy's been around for a long time, so he must know what he's talking about, and he doesn't know anything. You know, he's just spouting all this complete nonsense. So there's a lot of ignorance. I'll tell you, anybody who gets on the internets, the interwebs. Should you know really take this kind of stuff with a grain of salt? So, yeah. I don't, well, it's, it's just another example of somebody like again. It's just um, it's it's a wonderful tool, but it also gives complete a complete platform um, to all those people out there who know next to nothing. But oh, it's know. gold. It's like it's like mining for gold or uh, sifting for gold. You know, there's the occasional nugget, but there's going to be an awful lot of dirt and crap that you just have to sift away. You know, to get to it, and it's really hard to tell because everybody's acting like an expert. I mean, I don't know how any of the three of us, whether you're looking at it like an academic, like I am, or somebody who does it often, like Phil, uh, to watch someone in the Olympic Games, you know, to be on on point here, you know, take hundreds of pounds from the floor to directly to overhead that fast and not say. Oh my God! You know the yeah. speed and power. I, I don't see that really displayed to that level in any other sport. I mean, especially when you see the bar is so loaded with, with plates on either side. It's so humbling because I don't think I could do that. I, I'd struggle to do that with like 135, 185. You know, and my form would suck. But you know what I'm saying is that oh my God! You know, I don't know how this guy or anybody else on these forums can look at that and be like, oh, I don't know. You know, I, I almost think it comes down to the fact that, again, I think a lot of these people are just like, you know, uh, hobbyists and not actual athletes. And I think that's, that can be long, because uh, I can certainly say it for myself, and certainly I know it's true of you two and other athletes and competitors that I know. You tend to develop an appreciation for all types of athletes. You know, even if it's not something that you fully understand, I don't fully understand sprinting. Of course, I've never trained sprinting in my life. You know, my knowledge of sprinting is base level at best. But, you know, when you look at what they're achieving, you know, and you look at, like, you know, some of these, <laughs> it's just, to me, it's just miraculous. It's not what I do. And like I say, I don't fully understand it. But I know it's remarkable what they're doing. You know, and, and I, the, the, the gymnasts or the, it's amazing. You know, and I think it's that that's the difference between again athletes and hobbyists who just you know exercise. Yeah, you know, you, and you're right. That's a kind of the people that are often most vocal on internet forums are, are the people who are the armchair hobbyist type. You know, they've never gone beyond that base level of understanding like you are, and then they they, they learn a little, and they're the most excited to babble about it. You know, there's an old Asian saying about you know the shallow babbling brook makes a lot more sound than the deep. Uh, slow-moving river, you know. Ooh, so nice. deep rivers are quiet. Little shallow babbling brooks are the ones making the noise, and that's what you see on those forums. Phil, who was the weightlifter that dropped the uh, 430 pounds or whatever on, oh. his, on the back of his neck? Who was that? Yeah, I can find it. I don't remember his name. But I don't oh, know if our goodness. listeners are familiar with this, or I'm sure we have some that watch the weightlifting and some who don't, but um, 
just in the last few days, I suppose, one of the weightlifters uh, dropped what I believe was yeah, it was like yeah, it was 423 fun. or 432, something like that. And you can see the video of it. And it, it, he gets it over his head, and then for whatever reason... arms just give out, yeah. Yeah, and it comes back down on the nape of his neck, kind of head, nape oh. of his neck. And, I mean, he gets folded, yeah. And you that. look at that, and you think, okay, you know, like, if that came down square on his noggin, that dude would be paralyzed. Mm. As is, he's definitely a little stunned, as you would imagine. Oh, yeah. Would be. But he walks it off pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he gets up and walks away real well. You know, and you're thinking... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's astounding. That's testimony yeah. to how tough, you know, world-class athletes are, you know, because you think, you know, just that he can take a hit like that, you know, even, I don't know, man. And anybody who's held 400, 500 pounds in their hands, either, you know, at arm's length or over their head or, you know, above their chest will fully recognize what that would feel like coming down on you. Right. So, and so, so much with the Olympic lifts, plus the acceleration due to gravity that you, like Phil saying, this is going directly overhead. This is so much worse, in a sense, you yeah. know, for the yeah. injury stuff. So. Yeah, it was 400 pounds dropping at arm's length overhead. Oh, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, when that when that happened, I I tell you that I had a pregnant pause where I was thinking to myself, oh, is this guy going to, like... Is, this gonna is he going to make it? Is, <laughs> yeah, like, I was I was actually thinking to myself, is this going to be, you know, the, the start of the, down, you know, the downward spiral of weightlifting in the Olympics, if, if he actually does expire? <laughs> you know, kind yeah. of... Kind of a thing, but uh, it's so amazing when he walks it off. Like you said, just such toughness; it's unreal. Yeah, yeah. no, that's saying it was actually a, a big success that they had more people watching it than ever of recent years. And um, I know there was a lot of talk, like Lonnie was talking about, different body sizes and whatnot. And the women and such from from the heavier weight classes were very outspoken this year, doing a lot of interviews. And they're like, you know, this isn't about what we look like; it's about what we do. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Chinese heavyweight who won was really proponent on that. Um, she she talked out big time, and so did Sarah Robles and then uh, Holly. Of course, they both got great coverage um, and did well. They came in seventh and tenth. Um, oh yeah, okay. respectively. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, I'd love to see more Americans take it up. You know, it'd be it'd be great to get a team out there. In order for that to happen, we've got to start looking at some of the big girls and the big guys, almost the way that the Japanese look at sumo. You know, yeah. like with huge respect, amazement, uh, because yeah. I see a lot of similarities there. You know, with the power eating and all that kind of stuff, and uh, not just apply some aesthetic uh, standard to these people who care nothing for it. And I'll be honest, I think our shot is is with the females because and I'll tell you why. It's uh, they don't have as many shots in professional sports. You know, our big strong guys are going to the NFL. And yeah. the NBA yep. and, and baseball and then mainly the NFL. But you know, no, that's a great point. The women don't have that big shot after yeah. after college. Speaking you know, speaking so. of shot put, mm-hmm. those guys are big oh. dudes, yeah. man. Oh, yeah. There is nothing. <laughs> there is nothing. No, there's nothing small about them. Like Phil yeah, says, ass moves mass. I was gonna say those. Some of those I was watching that the other day, and I was just like, again, a sport that I know rudimentarily only. Um, but wow. Could I relate to just the size of those guys? I was like, hey, any of these guys would be prime if they wanted to just step out of this and move over to strongmen or powerlifting. Those are, I mean, obviously, the reality is, of course, that those guys do that stuff anyway. But, wow, talk about huge men. Amazing. 
And then trampoline. I know that's your favorite sport, Rob. Well, I do that just um, in the backyard in my own yeah. time, yeah. So <laughs> I'd like to see that trampoline, like reinforced military grade. <laughs> yeah. Pile drive my ass right into the fr- hit my head right into the ground. No, shot putters, I you know, I I was privileged enough to in Arizona be around a lot of them. Yeah, you're talking masses of humanity. Oh, I mean, all the, the guys I was watching were the heavyweight guys, and I'm telling you, none of these guys remotely were under 300 pounds. No. I mean, these were titanic. I, I would, with my eye, I was looking at them saying, okay, this guy's whatever, 6'5", six, 6'4", six, this guy must weigh 330 pounds. Yeah. I mean, he has to. Like, big, big men. And yes. not sloppy really looking. You know, no. sloppy from a bodybuilding perspective, but from a, like a functional powerlifting perspective, these are big, solid men, you know? So hats off to them! Wow. Well, lots to respect across all those teams. For sure. Anyway, so hails all to the all the Olympians, even the table tennis people, whatever you know, it, to, to become the best at what you do, um, and to be offered the opportunity to go to the Olympics. That's that's awesome. So congratulations to everybody who made it there. Yeah. Right on. All right, all right guys. guys. Okay. Until next week, and again to our listeners, uh, look out for that contest on our Facebook page. I, I uh, Phil has set up a dedicated or will set up a dedicated section so go in there and uh win yourself a movie yeah win yourself a movie absolutely so again name what was it three of the actors from expendables 2 and, and three then, of their wussy replacements that you see in the modern area era of action film right so and then we'll uh pick those out and you'll get some dvds so all right guys until yeah. next week Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein You can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes. Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the -the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the liter- literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however, obviously I had done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you. 
about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.